and welcome to number 105 in our long-running series of financial well-being podcasts. I can see somebody on my screen now. His head is absolutely exploding with the enormity of what I've just said. <laughs> Tom Morris, tell us why you're staggered by that. It's just, it just feels like a big number now. They're just racking up. I mean, when did we start these? In 2016? We're coming up to our we're coming up to our eighth anniversary soon in the coming months. I just find that staggering that, yeah, we've continued to put this out and still only got two listeners. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know, and that's, and that's you and Chris. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Chris, no, it, was, it staggers me. Yeah, Chris, all of this was your idea in the first place, so you must be well pleased. <laughs> <laughs> I was ridiculed, David, ridiculed for the idea of doing a podcast back in 2016. Um, but no, it, I, what I find amazing is that we still find new things to talk about. Yeah. Um, around the subject of the relationship between money and happiness. I, I don't think we re repeated much at all in that entire time. It's incredible. Yeah, absolutely fascinating. And, and certainly it's something I always do look forward to. Um, and I'm looking forward to today. Uh, what, what's happening in today's uh, podcast, Chris? Today we are talking to a financial psychologist called Sonia Luda. Um, her, it, it, her surname is spelled, we would, English would pronounce it Luda. But when I interviewed her, she said it Luda. So I'm not sure if I've got that right still. But anyway, Sonia Luda. Well, we'll we're none of us the wiser, so we'll go with your pronunciation, Chris. <laughs> uh, just before we move on to that, obviously we could not possibly have a financial wellbeing podcast without a tight-ass Tomo tip from Tomo. Talking of Tom Morris, I think it's probably worthwhile asking him who he is and what he does. Tom, who are you? <laughs> it's always me. Who are you? Who are you? Um, yeah, I, I'm Tom Morris. I'm a director and charter financial planner over at Ovation Finance, based in Bristol, who sponsor and help create this podcast and have done for, well, all those years that we've been running now, uh, which is quite remarkable. Yeah, so if anyone does want to get in touch about their financial planning needs, feel free. Details in the show notes. Tom Morris, what have you got for us this week? Uh, I feel really guilty when they're not the funny ones. This is a really dry one, and it's one I did this week. Um, just go and double-check. Streaming services. You think about your Netflix, your Disney. I've got that for the, the children. You've got your Amazons. You've got your Now TVs. You name it. There's all sorts of streaming streaming options now. And there's often sneaky price hikes happen like in any business your subscription goes up they decide to increase it they feel as though people are going to still stay on board it's all business tactics blah 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 but you might be moved to or you're perceived to already be in on the premium service and be moved across to the new premium service with a new premium pricing when actually you look at what are you actually using from that streaming service and could you benefit from using the standard option a good example i looked at our netflix i was like hang on a second it's only used by two devices in this house it's not four so we don't need to be on the super duper 18 quid a month we could be on the 10 quid a month same happened with disney so just take a look at all the streaming services you have and actually ask yourself do i need that level of subscription or could i get away with using the lower one and hey presto you'll save yourself five to 10 quid a time at each decision per month. There you go. That's very good advice. And I'll just add on to that, actually, that in my experience, when you deal with your uh, uh, broadband provider, 
uh, and TV provider is about to run out, uh, and they get in touch with you and say, you know, you get a new contract, we're pulling it up by 50 quid, which is they nearly always do. Ring them up and say, well, I'm not happy with that. I'm going to leave. I'm going to switch over to another provider. And they'll always give you a special deal. I do that every <laughs> single time. And they always give me a special deal that I end up paying a lot less than they'd originally yeah, threatened. Yeah. Well, paying. exactly. What I would say about the streaming service ones, if people are put off by the effort of it, it can literally be done on the app on your phone. Mm. It, it's one of those, you don't even have to speak to a person because it's just a set menu that you've got a choice about. And you just tick the button and bang, the next month it switches over to that service. So you don't even have to speak. You don't even have to do that negotiating. It shouldn't even be a thing, should it, David? It should be the special deal, should be this, the thing that's on the renewal in the first place. It should not be. It used to be. I used to rather naively think that, that, that as customers, that the people who we bought services from were there to provide a service to us. And increasingly, those people are still there. Increasingly now, it feels like they're just there to try and rip us off. Uh, and and you have to work really really hard not to let them. Yeah, quite. I think this reminds me a bit of the, the Paul. It was yeah, episode ninety five with Paul Lewis, and he he went. You know, it was quite firm on. You know, actually do do fight to make sure that these bills aren't more than they should be. So yeah. yeah. Okay, good advice. Good tight ass advice from you as ever, Chris. Lead us on now, please, and introduce the main event. Okay, so Sonia Luda is. A financial psychologist uh, and one of the founders of the Financial Therapy Association in America. Um, but she's going to tell you a bit more about herself. So I'll let her speak for herself as we listen to my chat with Sonia Luda. Sonia, thanks so much for joining us on the Financial Wellbeing Podcast. It's my pleasure, Chris. Thank you so much for having me. And we find you in Kansas today where it's getting a bit cold. Is that right? That's right. It's right in the middle of the United States and the leaves are so beautiful they're green and yellow and purple and red and orange and all of the colors. Wonderful. Sounds fantastic. Um, could you just, Sonia, uh, just perhaps just give a bit of background to yourself for our listeners so they know who you are and, and why you're able to talk about what we're going to talk about? Yeah. So I have grown up in the United States all of my life. I've been in Kansas, went down south to Texas Tech University for a PhD in financial planning. But the reason I got down to Texas Tech was I started in Kansas and was studying financial planning and realized when it was time to go work with clients that I had no idea what I was doing if couples started arguing in my office or if they started crying in my office. And I was freaking out a little bit, to be honest. So I thought, I need some more information. So I found my way into marriage and family therapy. And that was such an enlightening experience to be going through my master's program and realizing that none of my colleagues were willing to talk about money with their couple clients when they came in. They would literally redirect the session to something else that was uh, relevant, but not what the couple came in to talk about. Meanwhile, I have all of my friends who I just graduated with in financial planning who we're now financial planners or para-financial planners. And one of them went so far as to say a couple started crying in their office and they just rescheduled the meeting. Like they weren't <laughs> even willing to go there at all. And so this is really what got me into trying to bridge the gap between those two fields of mental health and therapy and counseling, coaching with the financial side of things. And I helped form the Financial Therapy Association here in the United States, 
and really now just trying to shift my focus to what you've been doing for 20 years and let's not be so negative focused and how can we shift this into more positive and giving some of that health and well-being back into people's lives wow a fantastic um story uh so so in your experience then um where does what's what's the root of these issues why are we so bad at money and making money decisions do you think yeah you know i was hoping you would ask me why do we why are we so poor and making financial decisions because the play on words is kind of fun (laughs) damn it damn it oh man we missed it um (laughs) you know i think it's because we're doing what we think we should be doing and we're doing what other people think we should be doing, not what we believe down in our core values. And so there's this constant conflict between what we want and what we think other people think that we should want. And so it creates this huge amount of stress in our lives. And it's more specifically, I have really gotten into this idea of physiological stress. And this is the kind of stress that we cannot fool. This is what's going on in our internal system to reflect a fight or flight response mechanism. So we are doing something and there's a conflict and I perceive this to be a threat to me. So I'm on social media and I see what my friends are doing for vacations and I realize I'm not doing that thing for vacation. So immediately I'm flooded with all of this reaction and, and stress. And I think I need to be catching up or I'm missing the mark. And what happens when we experience that sense of danger or that threat is our body literally goes into a shutdown mode to where we're trying to protect ourselves And what we see when that happens is our fingers get cold. And I love talking about this because it's such an easy connection. And for whatever reason, people have not gotten on board with this concept quite yet. Right now, my hands are freezing cold because I feel this to be a threat. I have no idea what questions you're going to throw at me. So what's happening right now is the blood is literally going back to my heart to prepare for some sort of physical reaction, whether this is fighting to get out of this situation or running away to get out of the situation, the fight or flight response mechanism. So you can feel your hands and you cannot trick how stressed you really are in that particular situation. When I'm looking at social media and I'm seeing what I'm missing out on, my hands are going to be colder because I'm feeling this threat that's posed against me. When this happens, when my fingers are cold, also your feet are cold. Do you have cold feet? That's where the saying comes from. It I've, all makes I've sense. never heard that before. That's absolutely <laughs> It amazing. all makes sense, right? It yeah. always comes from something. So the blood is also not flowing through our brain as well as it should be. So instead of thinking through the cause and effect of a situation, thinking more long-term, when we're under this physiological stress, we go into a habit-based emotion-based, very myopic, very now-focused decision-making pattern because we don't have the blood blood flow through our brain to make these long-term rational decisions. All we care about is protecting ourselves right here, right now. So the long way of answering your question, why do we make poor decisions? I don't think that we think we're making poor decisions. We're making decisions 
to protect ourselves right there in the moment and to be what we think people think is the best version of ourselves. And I don't even know that we can process that it is a poor decision right then and there until we start teaching ourselves what really is going on in my brain and what's going on in my body right mm. then. So you, you started that answer with this disconnect between what we do, which is driven by other people's expectations of what, what we perceive as other people's expectations of what we should do and our actual values. And there's often a conflict between the two. Is that inevitable? Does that always happen? Mm. That's a really fantastic question. I don't know if we have strong evidence to say that, but my opinion is yes. I think it does always happen. And it's not even that people have those expectations of us, right? The way you just asked that question of it's what we think other people want us to do. Is that really what other people want us to do? Particularly if I'm thinking about my spouse or my partner, do they really want me to be a particular way or am I projecting that on them to for what I what maybe I do want down below and we're reflecting this back to the other person and we're making up all of these stories without any real basis and willingness to talk about mm. a core value yeah yeah I, and of course when it comes to money we've got so many complicating issues like status and and so forth I, I think of one client I dealt with many years ago who um left his business a little acrimoniously uh left the partnership and he had to give back his uh bmw you know his big fancy car and to replace it he got a smart car really tiny small car um and for many people that would have been a big status hit but actually for him he thought it was hilarious because he could park so much easier than he used to be able to <laughs> and i've always admired him for that you know um but i suspect he's probably quite you know, there's not many people that would have that reaction. I think the normal reaction would be to feel a certain status hit, wouldn't it? Yeah, for sure. And that's really hard to do, to feel content with exactly what you have mm. right now versus chasing the status thing. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So that, that seems to be a little bit of a clue for <laughs> a happy life, being happy with what you've got right now. I mean, that's, that's mindfulness, isn't it? That's all sorts of things. That is mindfulness. And, you know, there's this statistic that I read recently, I think this was from Gallup's research, as we've been talking about Gallup prior to starting the podcast. And it's so fascinating to think about and making this become a reality. Hang with me for a second. Your friends, friends, friends have a greater impact on your happiness than an increase in salary. Isn't that wild? Terribly depressing. <laughs> but I think it's tied exactly to what we're talking about with being content with what you have right now and not trying to compare yourself to others, just living life for what it's worth and associating yourself with people who are content with where they are right now. If you're hanging out with the people who are constantly chasing the newest BMW and the newest neighborhood and the the best job um, from a status perspective, you're going to be unhappy. But if you're hanging around with people who have happy friends, who also have happy friends, 
Mm. You're going to feel more content with where you are. You know, isn't that interesting? So I immediately went to the negative aspect of that statistic and thought that the friends, <laughs> friends, friends are having a bad effect. But actually, they could be having a good effect on me as well. Yes, they? yes, exactly. <laughs> oh, dear. I think Maybe I'm, you I'm... need new friends. <laughs> <laughs> no, no comment. Um, so, look, uh, I, I'd love to get back into that in a little more detail. Maybe we will. But um, if we just accept what you've just said, of course, it's of course we accept it that... Um, we have this poor relationship with money for the, for those reasons. How does this affect our health? Yeah, there is really clear connections between a person's financial well-being, how they feel and how they actually objectively are with their money and their physical health and also their social health or their relational health. When people have low financial satisfaction, they have low relationship satisfaction. Which one comes first? I don't know that we can say definitively, but there's definitely a high correlation between if you are not doing good financially, you're not doing good relationally, and you're not doing good physically as well as you could be. It doesn't mean that you're sick or that you're injured, but you're not as you're not at the place that you could be. So can I sorry to interrupt, but can I just clarify? By not doing well financially, we don't mean you're not rich. We mean you're not having a very good relationship with money. Right, exactly. This is the huge problem with financial well-being, right? That we always just jump to the numbers. And that is part of the equation, but it's more how we feel about our financial situation. Exactly. So if that's hard for us to do, to make this leap and thinking about money differently and dare I say, just being content with what we have, if we can shift our focus to our relationships and working on improving those relationships, we do see that financial well-being increases. If we can shift the way that we are with our physical health, we do see shifts in the way we are with our financial well-being. And there's easy ways of doing this. And one, let's take a look at our physiological stress and see when we get heightened. We Everybody has a thermometer post-COVID. You can check your temperature anytime. And once you teach yourself what it feels like to have warm hands, then, then you can start noticing maybe the, the friend groups that are causing you to go to this other state of mind that's not healthy for you. You can also go outside for 15 minutes, even though it's cold where I am right now. If I go outside for 15 minutes, that's it. It's not even that long. You start seeing measurable increases in people's well-being and depression decreases, anxiety decreases, sense of contentment increases. I will start sleeping better. 15 minutes. That's all it takes. That's a very quick walk around that I could get through. Um, we also see with um, couples. I was going to ask about because you mentioned relationships earlier on. Um, yeah. I'm really interested to see how, how this um, how our relationship with money affects our relationships. I'm yeah, really people, some listeners going to fight me, but I assure you <laughs> the science does not lie. That when people have more joint financial accounts, so joint bank accounts or joint investment accounts, they have better relationships. 
The more wow. joint accounts, the higher the relationship satisfaction. Wow. Again, which one comes first? We don't know. This was some. So, so older... what? Could you just explain why that is? What is it about having a joint account that makes leads to a better relationship? I think it's because we have to talk about the money right. and we have to t- talk about our goals as a couple. Otherwise, it's not the funnest thing to do. You've had a long week at work and you come home. Probably we don't want to talk about our long-term financial goals. We want to have a nice drink or go for a walk or do something else that's anything that's more fun than talking about our long-term financial goals and and plans. And if we have joint accounts, we can't avoid it. We have to have that conversation and we have to talk about how we're spending the money now. And we have to talk about what our long-term goals are. So I think it's because it's the forced conversations that we don't really want to have, but that we need to have. Uh, you can you list as well you're gonna see, but I'm grinning my head off now. I'm just obviously obviously thinking about me and my wife and the conversations <laughs> we avoid having. <laughs> I know. It's not fun. Nobody wants to do it. But but there is a benefit in doing it as ever. Talking is always better than not talking, isn't it? Um, Precisely. So how how can we improve our relationship with money that will improve both our health and also our relationships? You know what 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 suggestions have you got? Talking more that's a great one. What else? Yeah, you know if you're lucky enough and you're just starting a relationship, there's some pretty strong evidence to suggest that. The more you talk about money now is going to pay off in dividends for your long-term relationship satisfaction. So the amount that a couple argues about money in the beginning of their relationship is even more predictive of later relationship satisfaction than an increase in how much they argue about money or how much they're arguing down the road right at the beginning of their relationship is so important. So to the communication thing, for sure. Uh, the more you can increase at the beginning of the relationship, the better. And it's interesting that you use the word arguing about. I mean, I'm not saying that that it's it's always inevitably going to be an argument, but it certainly was in my head when I was thinking about it. Even the argument clears the air and gets some understanding, I I guess. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, let's keep going with the communication train. So you've been married a long time. I've been married not as long of time, but a fair amount of time. And we have you talked with your partner about your earliest memories about money? No, no, right. I, I don't think so. I mean, I mean, given what I've you know been writing and speaking on this subject for uh, nearly a decade, I guess uh, we've had more conversations about money than most would. Sure. Um, but I don't think I've had that particular one. No, there's no reason why you would, right? No, but I guarantee it will change your relationship. And I don't know what my first relationship with money was. I guess it was getting pocket money of 2p from my from my dad and going up the road and buying a couple of sweets with it. It's probably one of my very first memories of money. Oh, that's fascinating. And you should tell your wife that and see what her reaction is. <laughs> <laughs> the reason why I say this is because it was such a wonderful experience working with this couple who the the wife was the one who wanted to come in and the husband was being a good husband and he came along with her and we had already met for two times and he said no more than 10 words during these first two meetings this was all about her and what she wanted to accomplish and he was very compliant and then on this third meeting I got Plato out 
and I had them sculpt out their earliest memory about money. So you could make some nice little candy and and maybe two little people. And he made, I thought for sure he wasn't going to participate because he was not very communicative with me. He was polite, but just not very talkative. And he pulled out this little tub of Play-Doh and made the most beautiful pig you've ever seen from Play-Doh. Okay, it was so detailed. He even got the pen out of his back pocket and was poking little holes in it and made the little twirly tail. It was beautiful. And then they have to tell a story about their sculpture. And I was expecting a story about a piggy bank. That's quite normal to have a little piggy bank that you save money in, coins. And instead, he tells the story of a literal pig that he raised from a piglet as a child. He was about eight years old and he raised it and took it to the county fair, which is a big thing in Kansas. And at the county fair, you stay with your animal the whole week. And it is ridiculously hot because this is the height of the summer. It's you're sweating the whole time. There's no air conditioning. You're outside with this pig. So here he is as a child with this pig all week long with this pig and making sure it remains clean. And then at the end of the week, there's an auction and the pig doesn't come home. Oh, no. Yes. And so he has spent an entire year raising this piglet to a pig and all week and not ideal conditions. And then the pig goes away and he never saw a dime from that sale of the pig. His parents took it and it was gone. Like all of his work was gone. The pig was gone. The money was gone. He had nothing. And his wife took a deep breath and she said, I get it. I get why you want to know where every single penny goes. I get why you're always questioning what I'm doing. And it was such a light bulb moment for them. And they went home and he showed her all of the financial accounts. And she even started taking over some of the spending categories. And it was all because we talked about the silly pig from when he was eight years old. There was no reason for them to have that conversation. Why would it ever come up in everyday conversation? It just wouldn't. And that moment was what really changed it for them to really understand why it was that he was so, in her words, controlling with money. And, And they did everything from there. I didn't have to intervene at all. They took it and ran with it. So... Um, I think it is, yeah, it's really enlightening in terms of how much we can learn if we just start asking the questions and being willing to consider how our past might inform current behavior. Yeah. Well, what a wonderful story. Thank you for sharing that. Um, so look, just, just, just to finish off, I'd like to just talk, um, to our a lot of our listeners are financial advisors themselves um financial planners and financial advisors um so we've established that um we have a disconnect with what we do because we do we do it often on other people's values this creates uh, an unhealthy relationship with money which is bad for our health and bad for our, for our relationships financial planners have to deal with couples and um you've just given a wonderful story about how they might go about asking a simple question have you got any other suggestions for this tricky situation you talked about the the, the uh, advisor the planner 
who when the clients started crying in their meeting just quickly changed the subject and I mean, what should they have done what what tips and suggestions do you have for how advisors and planners can deal with couples like that i think we've come a long way in the last 20 years to where people are not going to shut down the conversation yeah. of sheds a tear but i think being comfortable yourself and recognizing what might be your triggers and preparing yourself mentally is a good way of avoiding that particular situation but i think the real way that financial advisors can make an impact in the lives of their clients is helping them close that gap between what we think other people want and what we want and that seems so simple but you know it's hard. Um, clients don't always know what they want because we've been told what we want for so many years. So really helping them dig down into what are their core values. And I love to put it out in a bullseye. So what is most important to you? And you have to get them on the same page. So I have each partner do it. And then we look at their, I say three each. So we've got six core values. And then it comes down to a conversation of, okay, how do these six interrelate with one another? And usually you can find the common theme between, let's say, his three core values and let's say her three core values. And then we align those into a bullseye and we start with what's most important to us together in the center of the bullseye. And then we, and we call that, let's say, um, We'll call it family, but maybe that means that our children don't have to worry for money, okay? But maybe we're calling that center core value family. And then we build out, okay, what's the next most important thing to us? And then the next most important thing to us in the outer ring. And if we need to go to four or five, that's fine. But let's actually draw it out and label those rings with the core values and then when we start talking about what it is we want to do with our money or how we're spending our money currently, I use sticky notes and we put it on the bullseye of, okay, that aligns with this core value. And it really helps you stay focused versus, oh, well, we should save X amount for retirement. Okay, that's a nice thing. And society says, yes, we should be financially prepared for retirement. And how does that align with your core values? And maybe that's not the most important thing. And I know that's painful to say as a financial advisor, but maybe there are other priorities we need to get to first. And it doesn't mean that we can't also plan for retirement, but let's address what's at the most important core of what's important for them and have that visual reminder versus just talking hypothetically, like let's put it out there visually for everyone to see. That's fantastic. That's amazing. If I can just share a very quick story. It um, reminds me when I was the first few years of my financial planning firm, Ovation Finance. Um, and after about three or four years, I thought, okay, the hard bit's done. We're now going. You're up and running, you know. Um, and I said to my wife, I, I said, right, it's decision time. I can take this business in one of two ways. I reckon, and we had young kids at the time, I, I reckon I could work till six, seven o'clock at night, maybe popping in on Saturdays. And I could make quite a big business out of this and we could be quite wealthy in 10, 15 years time. Or I come back at half past five, six o'clock, put the, give the kids tea, take them to school two or three times a week. I'm around at weekends, but we're not going to be wealthy. Which do you want? And it was B. Easy. But we, but we had that conversation and that was so, so important. So actually 
just the fact of what you've been describing is getting people to talk about it and um also the the expectations of others the expectations of your own partner of your own family you know you talked about your kids being financially secure do they want that my mum would never spend money on herself and we kept trying to make her but she wanted to keep a bit for us we didn't want that all this kind of stuff is all in this space isn't it it is and it's such a quote simple thing to do but it's hard to start those conversations and being vulnerable yourself to even ask the questions yeah Oh, absolutely fascinating stuff. Um, just to finish off, would you tell us a little bit about Enlight? Yes. So this is my consultancy firm where I help financial planners bridge the gap between these issues that we're talking about and financial planning. So how do we identify grief in clients and how can we intervene with those moments where clients are maybe at their absolute worst and getting them to a place to where they can get back to their rational decision-making state. How do we recognize anxiety? How do we recognize depressive symptoms in clients? And what are things we should say or maybe not say during those moments? And when when do we stay well out of it as well? Because most advisors aren't qualified to be counselors, are they? Exactly. Knowing knowing your lines, I think is quite an important. You know your 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 boundaries. I should say is, is quite an important part of that process. I would imagine it absolutely is, and that it goes right back to what do you say or not say during those moments. Fantastic, uh, Sonia Luda. I've enjoyed this immensely. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Well. Fascinating stuff. I was about to make a pun about that being a lot of fun, but actually I decided that I wouldn't. But oh, no. Thank, thank goodness anybody. you didn't. <laughs> Phew. That would have been embarrassing, wouldn't it? <laughs> I, I, I love that chat. I mean, I'll, I'll let Tomo go first because I've got a few things to, to, to bring out from it, but um, I've mm. just done the chat. So, yeah, I was just, I was just scribbling down some, some notes. First thing, one of the first things she said is that, you know, kind of act how others think we should. And that's so true. When I'm having conversations with with clients and ask a question, the first thing that they respond back with is almost what what does society think I should say about this? So it, it's trying to go go past that level. And and the fact that because we are acting in a way that what other people expect of us, and that is likely at least sometimes being conflict with our own values, mm. that formula equals unhappiness. Yes. Yeah. Precisely. Um, and. That's why you know, just talk about quote, quote, arguments with with within couples. I think it's really important to discuss these things so that you can get past the superficial answer and get to the root of what what are those values. Push past it. It's uncomfortable to actually be pushed on what you actually think, which could be so different to what society thinks that you should, where you should think, or what you perceive society that thinks. Yeah, that's a really really interesting distinction. That isn't it? Really interesting. Yeah, yeah. I also liked. Um, she gives an explanation. She gave an explanation about why it's hard to be content with what you have, and I think that's that was a light bulb moment for me because if it's actually I don't know what you would call it biologically, psychologically, I am not built to be very good at being content with what I have. I've got to work at that. That fits right into the set point theory that we were talking about last time and our intentional activity, we've got to work hard at this stuff. Yeah. Happiness doesn't just happen. you know. It takes effort. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
another thing that links back to some of the things we talked about in the previous episode was the stat that she said, you know, your friends, friends, friends have more impact on your happiness than a salary increase. So it just goes to show that the way that you act in your intentional behavior is that 40% we talked about in the previous episode versus that 10% of, you know, the financial circumstance you're, you're in. And I just found that it backed up what we were saying. So we're not complete, complete. <laughs> and it's kind of knowing when we've had enough as well. I remember going, referring back again to the last, the last episode when it's around Christmas time. Uh, and uh, Tom, you mentioned that you would, your family were doing a secret center and mm. indeed uh, my family always does that as well because there's loads of us and it's just a, a better way of doing it and 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 last christmas um i got oh, hang on. i think i know where this one goes go on did you give somebody something your heart <laughs> <laughs> yeah by the time that this has gone out people are going to be so fed up at christmas songs yeah. chris oh, that, that happened to me a week ago and it's on <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's um, officially grinch Anyway, if I if, if I may continue, <laughs> so um, uh, and I was asked by the the person who coordinates the Secret Santa what I wanted for Christmas, and I kind of just couldn't think of anything. I could not think of anything at all that I needed or wanted, and in the right. end, I just decided to ask them to give some money to charity instead because I genuinely couldn't think of anything that was going to make me happy that they would get, give me that I didn't already have. Yeah. And uh, maybe that comes from being a bit older and perhaps just a little bit better off. I don't know. But uh, it was a real interesting thing for me, for me to just go, actually, it's enough. Mm. I, I, you've got me thinking about that question, David. And I think I would like that person to organise something for us to do together. So whether that's tickets to go and watch the cricket or whether it's just to go out for lunch somewhere, that would be the sort of thing that oh. a massive hint <laughs> anybody might want to get me for Christmas. Um, can I just um, drag us back to the chat with Sonja Luda? There was, um, I just want to reiterate a little exercise that she recommended because I, I I know we've just heard it, but it was over five, ten minutes. I just want to just reiterate or encapsulate it. She was talking about little exercise for for partners to do, for couples to do where you talk about your core values, both individually, and then you compare them and you find some common ground and maybe some outliers, that's all okay. You focus in on the common ground and you compare that with how you are currently spending your money. What a fabulous little exercise for every couple to go through. Only takes half an hour, an hour or so. Um, best done with a financial advisor, I would suggest to somebody managing the process but even if you don't just do it with yourself what a great thing to do what how revealing would that be to compare how you're spending your money with your combined core values mm. Mm. Yeah. excellent well i do find that these interviews expertly conducted as they are always take us to a very different place in the podcast you know the, the, the when we're not interviewing anybody we just sit around we waffle about stuff sometimes with some intent and sometimes with less intent but the interviews, and this was another great example, often just take us to a to our give us a, help to give us a whole new perspective on the whole issue of financial well being. I hope you've all enjoyed today's podcast, and we hope you'll join us again next time we do another one of our financial well being podcasts. If you want to be notified of upcoming podcasts, make sure you click the subscribe button. 
For more information on the topics discussed in today's podcast and to purchase a copy of the Financial Wellbeing book, please visit www.financialwell-being.co.uk. We'd love to hear your thoughts and ideas on financial well-being. You can send us an email at contact at financialwell-being.co.uk. You can follow us on Twitter at FinWellBeing. Chris is Ovation Chris and David is at Dave underscore Backwell. This has been an Ovation Finance production. Thanks for listening to the Financial Wellbeing Podcast. More interesting than you might think. Thank you.